You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Spring and welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, Dr. Alison Bronowski featuring security laws, Julian Assange and the so-called Salisbury Novichok poisoning in 2018. Nick McClellan and Australia's Step Up to the Pacific, Kathy Kelly and reversals for the human good. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jan, listener, when here's excitement. We're about to cross the Parliament House for question time in the Senate, just as the Socialist Party fires the first question. My question is to the Minister for Aged Care. Could the Minister tell us how many deaths there have been on his watch in aged care facilities? Sorry, silence. What's going on? Hang on, the President is intervening. The Minister for Aged Care, could you respond to the question? Hmm, still silence. What's going on? Here's the President again. Uh, Senator Cole back the private sector. Could, could you answer the question? Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, why me? It was directed at the Minister for Aged Care. Oh, is that me? Uh, uh, could you repeat the question? Oh, look, it's taking too long. We'll move on. But surely it's the Minister for Aged Lack of Care. One government backbencher, Russell Broadbent, suggested just that, attacking the policies that have led to the disaster that is the privatised aged care sector. Mr Broadbent, Senator Colback, the private sector, dismissed the criticism, has an idea on how he thinks the aged care sector should be run. And you? No idea. Absolutely no idea. Just as a by-the-by, big Supremo Scuttlebim son, a.k.a. Scummo, said he does have confidence in Senator Colback, the private sector, and on one level we agree, we could be confident we know how the oh-so-competent senator will perform, and therein lies big worries. If he's front-bench material, what must those who didn't make it be like? What a shining advertisement for the parliamentary democratic system. As one of the numerous true blue Aussies of Irish descent, I've always loved the lilt of the Irish accent. Well, you, you probably don't have to be Irish to, to appreciate it, but my enjoyment has been blunted, because every time I hear the airline that used to be our airline, Big Supremo Alan Joystick, spouting off, I can't stand the accent. As we know, he's demanding government assist his shareholders and him, bail out the airline privatised to enjoy the efficiency of the private sector, and always while crushing and or sadly having to let go more and more of the workforce. He said he had no choice but to outsource 2,500 jobs, including baggage handlers and aircraft cleaners, obviously inspired by the outstanding success the private sector competence of the government outsourcing its quarantine hotel responsibilities. That is 2,500 workers being sadly let go on top of the 6,000 previously announced. So that should be the end of dirty aircraft and lost baggage, our, our, our luggage landing on the other side of the world to where we just landed. 
The nuclear hawk himself, world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, Paul Government, privatised our airline because the private sector was more efficient and had huge advantages over the inefficient, bloated hand of the public sector. Yet time and again, that grating Irish accent pleads for more government handouts because state-owned airlines have a huge advantage over the private sector, he tells us. I get very confused and realise how little I know about the greatest little economic order of them all. Remember just a few months ago when Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin's sense of decency was abraded by branch stacking and abuse of parliamentary office in the state socialist party, page after page, screaming headline after screaming headline day after day, well, obviously, Lord Rupert's editorial staff decided its readers had had enough of that sort of sensationalism. As last week, identical carry-on in the caring business class party, fingering Deputy Finance Minister Michael suck up to capital and that pious follower of the dear baby Jesus, Kevin Ansfrews the workers, half a single column bottom of P2, left-hand page and short follow-up reports also on left-hand pages, the Berry Story pages. But then they did have the big bad story of the week to splash page after page, sensation, sensation, the villain a different Andrews, the pejorative Dan yet again. Premiers grab for absolute power, screaming from P1. Uh, yes, we asked the Lord, there's been a couple of cases of COVID-19 in Queensland. Where would they have come from? Daniel Andrews. Uh, but they also can't control the mass deaths and illnesses in the US of the UN of the US of the world, for instance. Thanks to Daniel Andrews. Daniel Andrews has failed the US of people. Daniel Andrews has failed the people of the world. That'll teach Victorians for ignoring Lord Rupert's wise advice and twice electing the pejorative Dan and the socialist lot Lord Rupert ordered them not to elect. In fairness, there were clear differences between the Socialist Party branch stacking and misuse of public funds and the Caring Business Class Party branch stacking and misuse of public funds, outlined by Big Supremo Scuttlevem, who back then told Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Anthony all being Uzi, the Victorian scandal was his responsibility. You are the party leader. While he explained this week it was a state matter and absolutely nothing to do with him, like privatised aged care disasters which are his responsibility but are not his responsibility and nothing to do with him but everything to do with, yes, the pejorative Dan. He's even forced scuttled them and the team to legislate that the pejorative Dan's belt and road deal with evil China is against our national interest. Not that the legislation is aimed at evil China, of course, and the fact that the government supported the deal when it was signed shows how the pejorative D fooled them. Indeed, he's so evil, he's forced a committed supporter of the greatest little economic order, an ardent opponent of evil socialism, to urge Victorian businesses to become, wait for it, socialists. Good, good socialists in this case. Yes, Sarah Hinder, the socialist son. Remember, Sarah lost her Karangamite seat in the last election, so they bumped the Senate by bumping some senator whose name we've forgotten into some sinecure diplomatic role. Anyway, Sarah has urged Victorian businesses to sue the pejorative Dan government for losses during the lockdown and that should do the state coppers the world of good because the caring business class and the caring business class party tell us 
We can't afford a lockdown. We must learn to live with the virus because the economy can't afford not to live with it. Uh, so for people living with it, it must also mean dying with it. Look, that's an emotional and therefore a rational response. To state the obvious, people are mortal. They're going to die anyway. While the economy is immortal, it cannot die. Oh, like God. Same thing. To ensure the immortality of the greatest little economic order, therefore ignoring that Karl Marx chap's quote, all that is solid turns into air, ensure the immortality, the very mortal public sector must offer a little bit of help, over and above paying the caring employer's wages bill, bit of help, and in the circumstances, in the urgency of preserving the immortal, the very mortality of the environment, for instance, must be put aside temporarily. And sure, we all care about the environment, but, but this is an emergency. We can care about the environment later, or what's left of the environment later, when we can afford to waste time on social luxuries like preserving mortal life on Earth. Example, Scuttle them announced a $1 billion handout to the merchants of death industry for ships, vehicles and lots more train killer facilities, including a couple of hundred million on train killer infrastructure around Darwin, which will please our very, very, very close friend, the U.S. of whose Marines stationed in Darwin for our security can benefit from our public purse largesse. And example, 3.3 million to a FOSDIL, fossil company, to conduct a feasibility study into a brand new state-of-the-art coal-fired power station in North Queensland at Collinsville under the urgings of the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party rump. But just in case we're thinking, I'm not sure the planet needs another coal-fired power station just now, rest assured. The Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, insists it will be a low-emissions coal-fired power station. Perhaps they can go a step further and practice sequestration, the burying-your-head-in-the-sand solution for good measure, as the community measures the not-so-good. The recently deceased union environmentalist Jack Mundy argued workers should have a say in the work they do and should insist on performing, quote, socially useful work. But obviously the government couldn't think of anything more socially useful kickstart the economy their term and create jobs their great and sincere concern with a few billion of those workers taxes than the merchants of death and the profiteers from the death of the planet so finally finally listener i'm sure we can't think of any essential public services and responsibilities non-lethal public services that could do with a bit of a top-up good afternoon and thanks once again to mr kevin healy you know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 
3CR Radical Radio. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. Dr. Alison Borinovsky is an Australian academic, journalist, writer, former Australian public servant, a former Senate candidate for the WikiLeaks Party and Vice President of the Australians for War Powers Reform. But today the focus is a range of current issues. Beginning, Alison, with your Pearls and Irritations article of the 25th of August, it's titled the military-industrial-intelligence-security complex. Beginning with security, as you say, it sounds harmless and desirable. So what's the problem as you see it? That's, of course, why it's called security. And people talk about safety and security all the time without explaining if there is any difference, what the hell the difference is. It really annoys me. But security actually means the status quo. It means keeping things the way they are, and it is used by the people who want things to stay the way they are. That's security. Now, if things the way they are are great for everybody, well, there's nothing much to object about. But in fact, security means keeping things the way they are for people who are terrified of change. And you can imagine all sorts of things. The the reason that we have had no less than 80 pieces of legislation since 2001 that are supposed to improve our security against terrorism shows you what the fear is. Plus, the people who pass this legislation want to communicate that fear to the people who have to support it. Yet, what they don't think about, because they hear security and they think that's fine, is that this actually limits their own freedom of movement, their own freedom of communication, their own privacy their own capacity to debate or discuss or differ about anything in an increasing range of government activities. There are all kinds of things that government is now doing that we're not allowed to even ask about. And if we know about them, that in itself can be a crime imprisonable for five years. So you can see what's going on. And every time there's the slightest controversy abroad, you'll find that They'll use that opportunity, particularly the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, will use that opportunity to introduce yet another bill 
and pass it through Parliament particularly easily right now when Parliament doesn't sit for long. Debates are very limited. The opposition is afraid to touch anything with security in it, and it all gets passed. This is something that people are probably not very much aware of until suddenly a 14-year-old in their family is taken in for questioning incommunicado for 14 days or more, not allowed to see anybody, and is told if he or she wants a lawyer and the authorities don't like his lawyer, they will nominate their own trustworthy one. This can happen to somebody as young as 14. This is Australia. We're getting very close to something that looks like fascism to me. And when you talk about all those laws that have come in since the 2000, mostly, none of those laws are ever rescinded, are they? They're just added to. That's right. They're being um, they're little bits added onto them all the time. So instead of being held for questioning for five days, it can now be 14. And instead of you having to be an adult, you can be a child. You know, and instead of you having your own lawyer, you have to have their lawyer, that sort of thing. Little incremental bits, little bits all the time. And now we're getting to the stage where security means not having anything to do uh, with certain unpopular countries, like, for instance, China. And if, if you do have anything to do with a country that is unpopular, that can be deemed to be a security offence. And before we know where we are, we will have people in our own country who are Australians who are deemed to be enemies of the state, that is, Chinese Australians. Mr. Musselman, who was a member of the upper house in New South Wales, has now been dropped by the Labour Party and dropped by the Legislative Assembly, and he is suing for defamation about this because all he has done is make friends in the Chinese community and visit China numerous times. You only have to remember it's only two or three years ago that China was the flavour of the month. It was not, it was our saviour from the global financial crisis. It was everything. And we couldn't get enough of it. And we were so grateful to them for their supporting our economy and everything else. And then suddenly this change of heart has come about. I'm not exactly sure by exactly what process it has, it has come. But people like Peter Jennings at Aspen and his colleagues are, are pushing it like mad and they're getting a great deal of support from the government for that. And a very compliant society of 25 million people who now have or have had for quite a while 10 security agencies who are secret. That's right. There are 10 of them and they're set out in a beautiful chart in the latest edition of Australian Foreign Affairs magazine, which has a really interesting series of articles on this subject, well worth reading. Those agencies have multiplied. We still don't have as many of them as the United States has, but we don't have as big an economy or population as the United States. In the past, there were ways that, for instance, Mr Justice Hope, who who did several royal commissions for governments about security, was careful to warn that they must not, these agencies must not have the capacity to arrest ordinary citizens or break the law themselves. Now they can. An ASIO officer can arrest you, and if they break the law in the pursuance of their duty, they will not be charged with that. We're talking about 
really dangerous stuff here. And, of course, there's Witness J and now there's Witness K. When I say fascism is creeping upon us, it's that kind of thing that I'm thinking of, and I'm not sure how many of your listeners are aware of these alphabetical witnesses, but briefly, Witness J, nobody knew anything about, and precious few still do. He, it turned out, was an Australian government employee who was who was working overseas, who had a different uh, view with his employers. He ended up in jail in the ACT on charges that have not been revealed, and he was then found guilty in a secret court of those charges, and he is now in prison somewhere nobody knows, for nobody knows what, nor for how long. Witness K, on the other hand, we do know what he did because he came out with it himself. He had been an ASIS officer. He had been working in Jakarta just at the time when the Australian embassy uh, was bombed by terrorists. He and his, some of his team were taken off that job just beforehand and sent to East Timor, to the capital, Delhi, where Australia was having negotiations over the uh, demarcation for the new government in East Timor of the oil and gas deposits in the Timor Sea, which had previously been between Australia and Indonesia. Now, when Indonesia relinquished control of uh, Timor, then it became a matter for Australia to sort out with the successor government. Witness K and his team were told by the government to go in as an aid team, putatively helping the East Timorese government with construction of their new offices for them, at the same time get into the cabinet offices of the government and bug them so that their discussions in advance of these negotiations with Australia over the oil and gas would be recorded and given to the Australian embassy and sent to Canberra so that the negotiation position of the Australian team could be worked out in advance to Australia's advantage. And it wasn't actually to Australia's advantage, it was to the advantage, the commercial advantage of Woodside Petroleum. Now, Woodside Petroleum was not even 100% Australian-owned. What Australia was doing under Foreign Minister Alexander Downer was not only illegal, but it was improper for the Australian intelligence services to be used in that manner, particularly when their absence from the cover at the time was a very dangerous absence for the good. So Witness K was very disturbed by this, and he became even more disturbed when, following the government, Downer ceased to be foreign minister, and his head of foreign affairs, Ashton Talbot, ceased to be head of foreign affairs, and both of them took lucrative positions with Redside Petroleum. And that made Witness K very disturbed. He did the proper thing. He raised it with senior people in his organisation, got nowhere. He then went to the director general of intelligence and security, which is the right thing to do, and it is what the law says he should have done, and he did. He was given advice that he should take his complaint to a lawyer who they approved of, and they had a list of approved lawyers, that is to say, lawyers who were security cleared. And one of those security cleared lawyers was Bernard Caleri. Bernard Caleri had been Attorney General of the ACT at one time, and he was in practice as a barrister. So Witness K went to see Bernard Caleri uh, with his problem, 
a while afterwards, Witness Kay's home was raided, Bernard Caleri's office was raided, and his home as well. Their computers were seized, their papers were seized, their phones, and so on. And Witness Kay's passport was taken, and he has never got it back. So he can't travel anywhere and hasn't been able to. Witness Kay and Bernard Caleri could not go to East Timor to appear in the hearings that were then going on about the improper behaviour of the Australian government during those negotiations. Then that matter sat on the desk of the previous Attorney General George Brandis for a very long time with a recommendation that Witness Kay should be arrested and tried. Brandis did nothing. He is now High Commissioner in London. His successor as Attorney General, Christian Porter, got onto it and decided to do things about the Witness K case. I think he did about Witness J as well as Metro, but he got onto the Witness K case, and since he's been in power, the case against him has progressed. But it's very difficult for anybody to know what progress it's actually making because it's all been in secret, and people can't go to the, to the hearings in the ACT Magistrates Court of either the Witness K matter or the Bernard Caleri matter, both of which will be heard, more sessions of those will be heard next month, and people gather outside, but they're not allowed to go inside, and nothing is published. And the judge who could have said, well, I'm going to make it public, declined, because the latest law, which Porter got through, said that the judge had to give the greatest regard to the Attorney General's advice about that, and so the judge had to and did. But there's another one. There's a fourth secret Kafka-esque operation, and that is David McBride. David McBride was the son of William McBride, who was the discoverer of the problem about thalidomide, father of a very prominent doctor. David McBride was an army lawyer, and he worked with both the British and Australians in Afghanistan. And after he saw what he saw in Afghanistan, he came out himself and made it public to the media, which is partly why the ABC offices were raided last year in Sydney to find out where those journalists got their information from. Well, David McBride has made no secret of the fact that he expected to be arrested, and he has been. He expected to be tried for saying what he did, and he was a very courageous man. But his trial too, his hearings, I can't even tell you the hearings that have been heard on McBride's case because I just don't know. This is not the way the so-called rule of law is supposed to apply. Now, that, I suppose, brings us to your other question, which is about Julian. He's been banged up in this dreadful jail in London for 15, 16 months now. Are they waiting for him to die in prison? I think that would be an outcome that would please some people, probably, yes. If you waited long enough, somebody in poor health in a place that is already infected with COVID-19 and which is home to some of the worst murderers in Britain, that outcome would not be implausible. And it makes me think, I must say, of the sudden death by suicide of Mr Epstein in the United States, which was a very convenient death for some people, I suspect, was said to be by suicide. And what I'm hearing is that all of a sudden we will hear that Julian Assange felt terribly sorry for everything he's done and has committed suicide. 
the problem here is that a little bit like these other cases that we were talking about, the law fumbles along very slowly and there have been countless hearings for this, that and the other aspect of Julian's case. But basically what is happening is there is an extradition application from the American government to have him sent from Britain to Virginia to be tried there for sedition and for computer crimes, for having accessed a secret American material on the internet, which he was given, by the way, but having accessed and passed it on and published it. Well, actually, they're not saying publish it because if they said publish it, then they'd have the New York Times would be in trouble and so would the Washington Post and so would all sorts of other people who publish leaks that they're given by the public, which is what Julian did and continues, or WikiLeaks continues to do. The Brits have been obliging the United States on this matter all the way along. The judge on the case has not listened carefully to what defence has said. She's made everything as difficult as she possibly could for them, both procedurally and in terms of the evidence that's presented. She walked into one hearing with her conclusions already written before the, anybody had spoken, and then she read them out. So it wouldn't have mattered what they said. They put her on the case because somebody knew that she could be trusted. Her superior judge, Lady Emma Arbuthnot, is married to a man who used to be high up in the defence establishment, and their son is high up in the defence security establishment. And so you can imagine where they're all coming from and why somebody like Julian and WikiLeaks are the devil incarnate for people like that. This lady, Emma Arbuthnot, who told Julian that no one is above the law, she is the one who's senior to the judge who's sitting on his case. And everything that that judge does, Barretsa is her name, Vanessa, everything that she does is obviously with an eye to what the superior judge is going to approve. Otherwise, she'll be overruled, and that would be humiliating for her. So he will be extradited, and the next hearing on that is next month. And it's only a matter of time, I suspect, even though the issue that will be raised is a very important one in law. That is to say, are the Americans using the treaty, that, the extradition treaty that they have with the UK, or are they using the, the extradition act of the United Kingdom? Because the two are different. They've got two pieces of legislation that contradict each other. And one says you can extradite people whether or not they've committed a political crime, and the other says you can't. There's been argument about which of these pieces of legislation applies to Julian and whether what Julian did was a political crime or not. But you can be sure that the way it comes out will result in Julian's extradition to the United States, which is what he has predicted all along, and which some of his enemies in the journalism fraternity used to accuse him of being paranoid for. When he said the, the Americans are planning to extradite him, he said this for years, they said, um, oh, you're paranoid. You've got delusions of grandeur. You're narcissistic. This has been said again and again and again, to the point where people, ordinary punters who aren't paying much attention, believe it. I mean, I talk about Julian, and they say, oh, he's a narcissist. He's a, he's a, he's a, a seditious traitor. He's an appalling piece of work. This is the 
because that's what they've been told for 10 years by the compliant media. And there are plenty of journalists who hate him because he got the scoop they didn't get. They looked stupid because he had thousands of documents that they had to scramble to deal with. And they didn't like that. And so they've been punishing this self-opinionated, smart-ass Australian for being who he is. You are listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR with Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Dr Alison Bronowski. You've mentioned five men, three that we know about, two that we don't know about. It makes you wonder how many more don't we know about. Yes, it's alarming, isn't it? Because if these are the ones we happen to know about, I'm not saying Witness Day was only a matter of luck that that was found out. Indeed. How many more are there? In fact, I think I saw something the other day from Christian Porter saying, oh, look, you know, um, you don't know the half of it, he said, the journalist. And that is a real worry because, as I said, this is the kind of thing that you expect in Stasi land. You don't expect this in Australia or are we killing ourselves? This is the system that we've got and the laws that we have allow this to happen. And when they don't allow it, they make more. And we have a, a compliant opposition that the minute they hear the word security, they pass them. Well, now to the so-called Salisbury poisoning on the 4th of March 2018. Sergei Skripal and his yep. daughter, Yulia, poisoned by Novichok. And now we have a four-part series on SBS. The first thing I would say to your listeners is that they were poisoned by Novichok is what you're all supposed to believe. In fact, that is a matter of dispute because not even Port and Down, which is the chemical and biological nuclear weapons research organization right near Salisbury, where the samples of things like Novichok are kept in very secure circumstances, not even they have identified Novichok by name. They've talked about a potent nerve agent and the OPCW, the Organization for Prevention of Chemical Weapons has also not identified Novichok by name. The Novichok identification was done by the media and by British ministers who said it was highly likely and then highly likely dropped out and it's become, well, Novichok. And the reason they want it to be believed to be Novichok is that the Russians invented Novichok and it's an anti-Russian thing and the Brits have been anti-Russian for a very long time, and the security industry in Britain exists on hatred of Russia and demonization of Russia. And it's not to say that the Russians, as your listeners will immediately cry, uh, it's not to say that the Russians don't have form. I mean, the Russians are expert poisoners, as we know, probably going back centuries it comes to that, as the Italians are, for instance. But they have done some spe- pretty spectacular things in recent years or so it seems. But I am reluctantly dragged to the, not conclusion, but to the suspicion that the Russians did not do Skripal, that it was not Novichok that did him. Because if it was, it would have killed him. Novichok, at least according to the very descriptions of it that the British authorities themselves have put out, is such a dangerous substance that a very tiny amount of it can affect thousands of people. It is incredibly potent. A small amount can kill you within minutes. 
and does it degrade rapidly, although it can spread over a wide area? Then we run into problems. They want us to be scared witless of Novichok. They want us to believe that Novichok was used to poison the script house. They wanted us to believe that they found it on the handle of Skripal's door. The only problem with that was that Skripal and his daughter went out early in the morning to visit the grave of his wife. The daughter had just arrived from Russia to see her father in advance of her, her marriage. And then they came back and they went to the central town of Salisbury and they had a few drinks and they went to lunch. And then they went for a walk in the local park and they had some bread which Sergei brought along to feed to the ducks, which he did. And there were some boys there. He said also to the ducks, and one of the boys, Ivan, ate some. Now, these are people who are supposed to have had Novichok on their hands to such an extent that shortly after that, they both simultaneously collapsed and were in dire situation, close to death. She for several weeks, he for several months in hospital. The hospital itself, the head of the Salisbury General Hospital, which has a lot of experience because it's close to Port and Down, there are a lot of experience in chemical and biological weapons damage, said that there are no cases in this, they said this on the 16th of March, very shortly after it happened. We have had no cases of nerve agent poisoning in this hospital. Three people were admitted with other serious poisoning, but it was not nerve agent. So the three people who were admitted were Skripalna's daughter and D.S. Bailey, the policeman, who arrived on the scene shortly after and who is a main character in this film that your listeners have probably seen and believed. The poor man, he had a hard time, there's no doubt. But not nearly as hard as the film makes up because he's fine. And as the film also points out, he ran a marathon shortly after. If I was on the other hand, were in hospital for quite a long time, when they were both released, first she, then he, they disappeared. Now, if they'd both been fine, you'd think that they would be back, if not in their house, which has been demolished, but in another house, also supplied for them by, get this, MI6. That's where their first house came from, because Sergei was still working for MI6, even though he was a double agent and said to have retired. He was still working, and his other neighbor on the other side, from the one that you see a lot of in the film, he was an ordinary chap who said Sergei was his friend, and no doubt he was, on the other side, who was his neighbor? Pablo Miller. Pablo Miller was MI6. He was the guy who recruited Skripal in Estonia. And before Skripal was caught for being a double agent for Britain, Pablo Miller was his minder. Then he comes back to Britain in a prisoner swap. He gets himself set up in Salisbury in MI6 financed housing with Pablo Miller, his minder, next door, just to keep an eye on him. Now, why does this happen? Why suddenly does Spiffel get poisoned, he and his daughter? But if it's not a shock, why are they not dead? They should be dead very quickly. Not only that, but so should D.S. Bailey, 
included because it's highly, highly toxic, more toxic than PX agent, which the Brits invented, by the way. And that is what is alleged to have killed the brother, half-brother of Kim Jong-un. Now, remember, in Kuala Lumpur, VX is bad stuff, but Novichok is worse. And if Novichok was what affected the Spiffers in their study, they would all be dead. Not only that, but it's highly toxic and contaminated, and Dears Bailey's wife and children were fine. No problem. As she says in the film, when they're offering to pull her house down, she says, but we've been in here for a week, and it's true, they have. So there are a lot of weird things, very weird things going on. There's another thing that people probably don't know about, and it shows up very briefly in the film. Early on, just before the Skripals collapse, they show these people walking around in the park. She collapses first, Yulia, and then her father is rocking back and forth on the seat. And the first person who approaches them is a middle-aged woman and her daughter. Nothing is said in the film about who these people are, and they vanish from sight, and then the police arrive, the Australia, etc. Now, that woman, in real life, was none other than the chief nurse of the British Army, Colonel Alison McCourt. And Colonel McCourt had experience at Portendown working on Ebola virus, where she had been exposed to, she had been working as a, as a nurse in um, Africa at the height of the Ebola virus. She knew all about chemical and biological weapons. And she was there, right there. It's the most extraordinary coincidence that I know about. This only came out later on. It was not revealed at the time of the poisoning at all. In fact, the Australian was said to be the first responder, but in fact, McCourt and her daughter were the first responders. And how do we know this? Because later on, they had a public event in Salisbury to give a prize, to an award to the daughter for being a first responder and showing such courage in a difficult situation. And her mother was there, and they both accepted it with great pride. Now, the other extraordinary thing about that is that neither of them had a hazmat suit on. Neither of them got infected by anything, even though they were vomited on by one or both of the scripts before they were taken off in an ambulance in a helicopter to the hospital. As far as we know, Colonel McCourt and her daughter just um, went off about their business and that was that. But I cannot imagine how that coincidence took place. Over and above all of that, there are various weird things that happened. The, the film is really not so much about the Spitao event because that was the subject of a BBC Panorama film in 2018. But it was <clears throat> concentrating more on Dylan Sturd, who was another Salisbury resident who died in early July of what was said to be Novichok. It appears that whoever set up the Skripal thing also set up Sturgis to make it appear that this stuff was lying around all over the place, that somebody had negligently or, or deliberately left it around and that the only people who could possibly have done that were the Russians, and they'd already found a couple of Russians who had been tourists in Salisbury. They'd got their passports and put them up on the net and said, there, that's it. 
they brought this stuff in. They left it lying around. And this pair of, of Beros, almost Sturgis and her boyfriend, found it, put Novichok out of a perfume bottle on themselves and both got affected to such an extent that Sturgis died and Rowley, her boyfriend, was very ill for, for a while. That's what the film is about. People watching this would say, oh, that's dreadful. Those horrible Russians, how could they do that? The question is, did they do that? And there's no proof in the film, nor anywhere else, that they did. All the government has is CCTV of these two Russians wandering into Salisbury on the 3rd for, for what they said was a recce, wandering back to London, doing dope with a, with a prostitute in their hotel in Soho, coming back again on the 4th and apparently leaving their dastardly stuff all over the place. Then, even after the Skripals had been poisoned, hanging about, not fleeing, uh, but until later in the day and then going back to London and from there to Moscow. Now, if you believe that, it hasn't gone to court and it wouldn't stand up at court. That's all I can say. But the interesting thing about it, and there are all kinds of, uh, of loopholes in this story about what the Russians did and about what the Skripals did and who was where, one of the most interesting, apart from the court setting, Skripal's daughter, after they'd had... Did I tell you about the ducks? After they'd had lunch, they wandered down for a walk to the local park in a place called the Avon Playground. And there was a lake, and they had some bread, which they cooked with them. And so they gave it to the ducks, and he gave some to the kids who were there to, to feed the ducks. And one of the boys ate some. No ducks, no kids got sick. And five or ten minutes after that, Sergei and his daughter collapsed of, quote, Novichok poisoning. Now, if they had Novichok on their hands and it was about to really kill them, why didn't the boys and the ducks get really, really sick? If it wasn't so serious, it would be comical. There is, in fact, another Russian in the story, according to the British authorities. When I say the authorities, there's an outfit in London called Bellingcat, which is run by a man called Elliot Higgins, and he's now got lots of money from foundations in the US and the UK, heaps of money. He used to be sort of operating out of his garage, but now he's very well funded, and he puts out convenient information, shall we say, from various governments, particularly British and American. But he is the one who says that he knows who the Russians are. He's the one who has published their so-called real names. He is the one who said there's a third Russian and named him too, and that he appeared and may still be around. So this keeps people who are watching what's going on quite scared if they're so inclined. The only reassurance that, that they can take is that 12 months after these events in Salisbury, that's to say by March, 2019, the British government declared that the whole of Salisbury had been decontaminated and was fine and safe. This is very interesting because if Novichok was all over the place, or then in Wiltshire, and if people could come across it because it hadn't degraded, and if it might contaminate people, why did the British government not evacuate? at least the whole of Salisbury. They didn't. 
they didn't even issue public health warnings. And in the film, they have these repeated meetings of the health officials with the public, and the public are very anxious and, and worried and, and angry about what's going on. And they are fed like mushrooms, you know, both by the health authorities who know nothing and can tell them nothing because they are not themselves being told anything from Portendown or from the British government except a load of what appears to be disinformation. And if it had been a really, really serious presence of this stuff in source group, the whole population ought to have been evacuated and nobody did anything. I mean, looking at it now from the vantage point of COVID-19, they didn't even shut the schools down. They didn't even put up social distancing. They didn't do anything. They pulled doors off buildings because they were worried, they were paranoid about door handles. They took everything out of D.S. Bailey's house. Even though his wife said, but we've been living here for a week and we're not sick. <laughs> she said it in the film, and it's true. Even their kittens were taken away to port and down and no doubt used for experiments. You know, and the cars were taken away. Anything that, that produced a spectacular effect, anything that could be done by the army was done. And that's how they operated it. They made it look like a big security scare done by the Russians. The evidence for it is just not there. That then makes you wonder who did it and why. It's hard to make oneself believe the British government or parts of the British government would do such a thing. I struggle myself to imagine it. But at the risk of becoming one of those so-called conspiracy theorists, there is a conspiracy somewhere. And there are people who know the truth. And I'm not one of them. What I'm telling you is what I do know. And it doesn't fit together. There are gaps in it. But it is not what they tell you. I tell you, this is really annoys me the most, is at the top of the SDS promo to this thing, they say, this is the incredible true story. It's not. It is incredible. That's to say you can't believe it. But it's not true. And it, it doesn't even pretend to be true. It's a feature film with actors and lines written by directors and scriptwriters. It's not a documentary. And none of the characters are the real people. They made it up and they could put in whatever they like and leave out whatever they like, and they did. But it's done the job for them. I think it has. I'm sure it has. I mean, one of my best friends in London, who's very intelligent, saw this when it first screened in London in June. And, and she said, oh, it's a pretty nasty business, isn't it? Well, it is. That's true. Thank you very much. Good Have to talk to you again. Dr. Alison Brynowski. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street, 
and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. CR believes that reporting of the ongoing issues surrounding COVID-19 is in the public interest and that our listeners tune in to hear in-depth analysis from a progressive perspective. We also know that the saturation of reporting in the mass media can lead to an increase in fear, anxiety and mental distress. If you are feeling distressed, we encourage you to take some time out from all media coverage and most importantly, reach out if you are needing help. Call Lifeline on 131 114. Get LGBTIQ plus counselling between 3pm and midnight by calling Switchboard on 1800 184 527. Call Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636 or Kids Helpline on 1800 551 800. 3CR, radio for the community since 1976. When your back's against the wall Gotta look deep within yourself Gotta rise above it all When no one's there to comfort you Gotta push your fears aside Rely on your inner strength Find a sense of pride City Limits Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne Every Wednesday at 9am City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. And we move to the Pacific with Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher. Australia's pledge to step up in the Pacific. How far do we go back to find the origins of this? Well, Australia's always seen the islands to the north and the east as uh, an important security buffer for strategic denial to keep out uh, threatening powers. And that goes back, you know, to the 19th century. But there's in recent years been a recognition that engagement with neighbouring Pacific countries has been failing. At the Pacific Islands Forum uh, under Malcolm Turnbull, he uh, went to the forum in Tonopay, the Federated States of Micronesia, and announced that Australia needed a step change in its relationship with Pacific neighbours. Scott Morrison, his successor at Laverick Army Barracks in Townsville, gave a speech uh, a year later saying that Australia would step up in the Pacific. It's a terrible piece of jargon, but it highlights concern in strategic policy circles in Australia that China has growing diplomatic and political influence, uh, increasing economic ties to neighbouring Pacific Island countries. Most security hardheads in Canberra are anxious that China might use that political and economic weight to leverage military or strategic advances in the region. So we've seen over the last few years... Australia putting a lot of time and energy into the island's region. 
within the bureaucracy. The uh, Morrison government created the Office of the Pacific, uh, so that's a division within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, a couple hundred staff who are focused solely on the Pacific. And the aim is to try and have, you know, to use the jargon, a whole-of-government approach, getting not just foreign affairs, um, which is responsible for the aid program as well, but also Defence, Attorney General's Office, ASIO, um, Home Affairs, other departments engaged more in the Pacific. There's certainly a lot of activity. There's certainly a lot of uh, important initiatives. But the whole step-up problem faces a number of structural problems, and the, the government is reluctant to address many of those structural problems because it has obviously big domestic concerns at the moment in terms of the response to the COVID pandemic. And also it's, it's trapped in its alliance with the United States in terms of the flexibility it has to be innovative on certain policies. Just before you go on to those structural problems, Nick, what has been the Pacific nation's response to this so-called step-up? Well, one of the reasons the step-up occurred was because over the last decade, well, indeed, going back longer, but certainly over the last decade, Pacific Island countries have been pushing their own agendas around development, around uh, decolonisation, and particularly, obviously, about climate change, which is the the core development and security issue facing the, the island's region, as indeed it faces Australia. We've seen a whole range of initiatives One of the most striking of these was the development of a a grouping of ambassadors in New York at the United Nations called PACIDS, Pacific Small Island Developing States. Um, Historically, the countries that are represented at the UN have worked together as the forum. Australia, New Zealand and the independent island countries at the UN have worked together over many years. But now the PACIDS group has joined the Asia bloc within the UN system and that has important implications for voting, um, for committee memberships, for getting positions uh, in the General Assembly and so on. And since that occurred nearly a decade ago, there's been some really significant changes. So, for example, Fiji has co-hosted the Global Conference on the Oceans, working with Sweden on this major initiative around oceans policy and starting up a, a process of working on oceans, and that's important for issues like fisheries, for maritime boundaries, for seabed mining, for a whole range of issues that are important to large ocean states in the Pacific. Fiji also co-hosted the uh, uh, a COP climate uh, negotiation, was based in Germany, uh, but uh, nonetheless Fiji was the, the president of the uh, Conference of the Parties, the UN Global Climate Negotiating Structure. Fiji's uh, former ambassador to the UN, uh, Peter Thompson, is now the UN Special Envoy on the Oceans, appointed directly by the UN Secretary-General. So as they've become part of this large Asia-Pacific bloc, the Pacific has had significant advances. Even small states, uh, Marshall Islands is on the UN Human Rights Committee this year and is using that to leverage issues like clean-up of nuclear issues, uh, oceans policy and, and others. So there's been real, um, real advantages for the Pacific in striking out in some directions without having a constraining hand that comes from being allied through the forum with Australia and New Zealand. So in a sense, Australia's missed the boat. Yeah, and look, it's happening all around the world where part of it is the rise of China as an economic power. More importantly, though, it's not just China, and I think the Australian mainstream media often misses this point. 
that Pacific countries have often had quite explicitly a policy of friends to all, enemies to none. That's Papua New Guinea's stated foreign policy agenda. They're certainly willing to work with close neighbours like Australia and New Zealand, with the United States and with other Western European powers and so on, but they're also eager to have diplomatic relations with rising powers from Asia, and not just China, but Taiwan, India, Indonesia and so on. The Pacific has been a lot more flexible in dealing with the range of players in the region. And last centuries, you know, there was always concern from Washington and Canberra that Russia was uh, trying to win influence in the region. Um, but the Russians were really a, ne- never a strategic threat in the region. Their activity was pretty limited, just a few fishing agreements and so on. Whereas now, major Asian powers like India and China, Indonesia to a certain extent, which is a big country by global standards, are active players in the Pacific region. And that was historically an area that had been under the control of the ANZUS allies and France. You know, Japan's been a player in the region going back to after the First World War. But you've got a lot more countries, including Korea and Malaysia and others, not always for good. You know, these companies coming and ripping down forests in Solomon Islands and PNG. There's a lot of concern about uh, the potential for seabed mining, which has got enormous environmental implications. But... Uh, you know, as you say, the, the Australians, the New Zealanders, the Americans are not the only game in town. And this is one of the, the big changes in the region that I think has passed, you know, most people in Australia by. They sort of recognise that China's a player, but there's a whole lot of other countries that are actively engaging diplomatically, politically. Now, Australia's still the biggest aid donor to the region by far. It's still the biggest uh, economic player in the region and certainly in terms of military clout in the South Pacific. But there are new players and that gives diplomatic leverage and political advantage to Pacific countries as they try and advance their agenda around climate change, around oceans and so on. Frankly, Canberra's not the only game in town and there are many people in Canberra who can't handle that reality. So in a sense we're saying it's a catch-up What are the structural problems as you see them? There's a number of problems, and part of that is an understanding of the dynamism of the contemporary Pacific and our academic, our media, our NGO networks aren't as engaged in the Pacific as they really need to be just because of of reasons of geography and history. There are three or four core ones, money, militarisation, labour mobility, and climate change. And I'll just talk about those four different areas. These are not simply a matter of if we work harder, it'll all come out in the wash. These are all areas where we have competing interests. And Australia's global interests, sometimes Trumpets regional interests, you know, the Australian government's interests, to say, or corporate interests. These are real structural problems that aren't just a matter of being nicer to the Pacific. One of the biggest problems, for example, is our aid program is at the lowest level it's been for many, many years. The OECD many years ago set a target of 0.7% of gross national product, gross national income, sorry, uh, 0.7% is the target that we should be aiming for. We're down to 0.19, I think, at the moment, heading down, and the current budget forecasts suggest that aid will shrink Desperately, the government, as it's tried to maintain its step up, has cut aid to Africa, cut aid to Southeast Asia. They're cutting to the bone. And indeed, DFAT just this week has announced that they're cutting 50 staff 
including staff in key embassies and missions overseas, um, high commissions. So they're cutting two people out of the Port Moresby uh, High Commission, cutting staff from Tokyo, from Jakarta and so on. And, you know, the government's just announced $270 billion for, for uh, a 10-year program in arms build-up, but they're slashing diplomacy and foreign aid to the bone. This is a significant problem. Australia, for example, has paid all of its overseas climate finance that we're obliged to under the uh, Paris Agreement on Climate Change from the aid program. This was true of the Labor Party as much as the Liberals, that uh, all the money that we give overseas for climate adaptation to support countries deal with storm surges and drought and flood and, and all the adverse effects of climate change comes out of the aid budget. The aid budget's shrinking. There's a real problem. Last year, for example, our Minister for the Pacific, Alex Hawke, was in Tuvalu and promised $500 million over the next five years for climate adaptation to be given to Pacific countries. That's $100 million a year. But they just had to rejig the aid budget and preach $280 million, that's a quarter of the aid budget, to go to COVID recovery. So, you know, it's clear that there's a need for looking for new and additional funding outside the aid budget to deal with all the global challenges of pandemics, of climate change and other things that are coming down the pipeline. Some countries are doing that. New Zealand, for example, is looking at how do you address fossil fuels and fossil fuel subsidies as a way of you know, generating some money, you know, charging. Uh, some countries are looking, for example, on putting a tax on the export of coal and a simple tax on coal exports would raise a huge amount of money in Australia. Others are doing what are called financial transaction taxes. France, for example, has been looking at things like what uh, were originally called Tobin taxes. The idea that you might put a cent tax on, on huge international transfers. And there's literally trillions of dollars being transferred around the world each day. A lot of it for pure speculation. So if there was a financial transaction tax, you could generate quite a lot of money that you could be used for socially useful purposes. But there's no debate about that in Australia. And the, the coalition government is very reluctant. And, and when I've interviewed key ministers in the government, they said, no, no, well, you just use the aid program. That's what it's for. But the aid program is shrinking. And so if you want to go toe-to-toe with China, as many people in Canberra do, that's a significant structural problem. As the, the aid budget is shrinking, is the boomerang aid increasing? Well, there's signs of that. Um, the government uh, created a $2 billion fund the Australian Infrastructure Investment Facility for the Pacific. And it's also uh, um, given more money to the Export Finance Agency. And the very mandate of the Export Finance Agency in Australia, Finance Authority in Australia, is to promote Australian business. So these are essentially subsidies for Australian businesses to operate in the region. And many Pacific countries have been uh, looking uh, you know, for support for their businesses as they try and develop infant industries. And this is the second structural problem that Australia is putting a lot of resources into subsidising Australian business to operate through trade, but they're facing significant competition in the Pacific. And one of the things we've seen over the last decade, there's been some interesting research by uh, people like Matthew Doran in Canberra that have shown that Australia's trade with the Pacific is pretty stable uh, over the last decade or so, whereas China's trade with the region has nearly tripled. And uh, so Pacific countries that have historically exported to Australia or the States or Japan are looking to China. Now that's 
what everyone's doing at the moment. I mean, Australia sells iron ore to China rather than historically we used to sell a lot of iron to Japan. You know, that's the way the world is nowadays. But the Pacific are doing exactly what we've done, which is diversify their markets. One of the problems is that trade between Australia and the Pacific has been stymied by this focus on looking after the Australian corporate sector. Um, in 2017, the PACER Plus trade agreement, which is a so-called free trade agreement with the Pacific, was signed by many smaller island countries, being negotiated over more than a decade uh, between Australia and forum island countries. But the two biggest economies in the region, Fiji and Papua New Guinea, refused to sign it. One of the reasons was they felt that the treaty would benefit Australian industries and Australian exporters over their infant industries. And they've been looking to market niche agricultural exports, for example, to other countries, and have found getting into the Australian market is very difficult. Just today on Ireland's Business Magazine, you can look up a story where Fiji, Fiji Carver has just announced that they're going to have an exclusive deal selling to a company in Shanghai for the Chinese market. Now, Australia has had a ban on the import of commercial quantities of carver for many years, uh, supposedly to protect indigenous health, where carver was being abused in the Northern Territory. But Vanuatu, Fiji, other countries uh, that have produced carver as an agricultural export crop have been stymied getting commercial quantities into Australia, so they've gone looking for extra markets. Where have they found them? Surprise, surprise, China. So here's this sort of problem where Australia has, uh, has talked tough about wanting to promote you know, business and trade and free trade in the region, yet the restrictions that um, have come through this PACER Plus Treaty have seen PNG and uh, Fiji turning increasingly to other markets. And the biggest market, surprise, surprise, is China. Access to work for Pacific Islanders and not only having work here, but being treated properly once they are here. That's been, once again, a, a, a huge part of this regional engagement. There are two schemes operating at the moment. The Seasonal Worker Program, which was originally begun by Kevin Rudd uh, as a pilot scheme back uh, when he was first elected. Um, the Howard government had refused to consider temporary labour mobility schemes. It was Rudd who set up a pilot scheme that, by 2012, was turned into the Seasonal Worker Program. More recently, there's another scheme called the Pacific Labor Scheme, which is for slightly longer-term contracts. You know, the seasonal workers, as the name suggests, comes for a season for a harvest to pick fruit. Originally, was the main focus of that program. But now the Pacific Labor Scheme is looking at other areas uh, um, in terms of people coming to work in aged care, in agriculture, in uh, aquaculture, other, other sectors. It's been an important part of uh, the Pacific's push to get remittances, so money earned by foreign overseas workers to send back home that could be used for socially useful purposes. But, as you say, there's been a real battle over making sure that foreign workers coming to Australia are protected from uh, exploitation, from unfair deductions from their wages, uh, you know, diverted to cost of transport or housing or any add-ons that employers throw into the mix. Um, to control sexual harassment in the workplace, all the issues that workers face every day in workplaces, um, non-citizen workers are, um, are at risk because if they complain too much, the boss can say, well, we'll breach your visa and you have to go home. So there's a, an added pressure. 
And so we've seen not just seasonal workers from the Pacific, but a whole lot of temporary labour migrants come to Australia in recent decades, and it's very much a structural part of the economy. We've talked about this on the program before. Up to two million non-citizens are working in Australia um, through skilled labour schemes, through the working holiday makers scheme or backpacker schemes, and uh, these seasonal worker programs, as well as um, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of New Zealanders working here with work rights. Before the pandemic, a couple of million people were here with visas that allowed them to work overseas students 20 hours a week and so on, but without the full rights of being an Australian worker. And that's, um, that's a real structural part of the economy now. It's been thrown into chaos, however, by the pandemic. And as we've seen, the, the Morrison government refused to give many of these foreign workers access to schemes like JobKeeper and JobSeeker. So you've had a lot of pressure on those uh, overseas workers who've been in Australia, haven't gone home, and it's thrown uh, up enormous problems uh, in terms of um, access to the country or repatriation home. So you've had Pacific seasonal workers who finished their contract but have had terrible troubles being repatriated back to their home country, particularly because some countries are wary about workers who might have um, picked up COVID in Australia. So you've had a whole lot of worker rights questions. Who's supporting these people who are stuck here? Some are being supported by charities. Some some have sought urgent diplomatic support to uh, relocate to other employers. There has been a couple of examples where people have been allowed to take up uh, an extended contract. And at the beginning of the pandemic, Australia did extend, the Australian government did extend the visas for seasonal workers because historically, as I say, they're here for short stints, you know, three, six, seven months uh, generally. And so some workers were allowed to stay, but that's raised a whole range of new problems. Just recently, Vanuatu has struck a deal where I think 140 workers, maybe 170, so I have to get the figures, have been uh, recruited to go and pick mangoes in the Northern Territory, given that the Northern Territory and Vanuatu are both largely COVID-free. Vanuatu hasn't had any confirmed diagnoses of COVID, so they're eager to maintain their uh, seasonal work uh, opportunities and maintain access to the Australian and New Zealand labour markets, but everyone's got to manage this so that there's not uh, uh, the danger of COVID being spread in either direction. But also the economic impact of this on the families back in the Pacific Nations when the money stops. There's, you know, a whole lot of social issues. And I've written a lot about this um, even before the seasonal worker program was extended. You know, a lot of economists present these seasonal worker programs as a win-win. You know, Australia gets a guaranteed labour force to pick its fruit, which, you know, they always say there are labour shortages, the employers. Workers get better wages than they can earn at home for similar sort of work um, and even with the cost of airfares and uh, passports and all the other associated costs that are involved in getting into these labour schemes you know many workers have benefited from that so that win-win scenario is the one that's put out in the most of the publicity but there are social cultural economic costs for families at home and so on and there's been a lot of interesting research about what it means you know, if parents are separated for uh, uh, long periods, if uh, children 
workplace changes in the um, uh, the household. Basically, if dad is away picking fruit for eight months of the year, what does that mean for mum? Uh, what support does she have at home? Um, there are some stay-at-home dads. Some women are coming on the programs. By and large, it's a male-dominated uh, phenomenon. How does money get allocated within the community? Uh, do communities lose uh, in the Pacific some of their best and brightest, the young, hardest workers who are fit and healthy? Um, what does that mean for ag- agricultural food production in the village? There's a whole lot of complex social and cultural impacts from these schemes, which the economists are often reluctant to engage with, um, but are a crucial part of this. There's also a sad and tragic history of exploitation of overseas workers, and that's stark in an industry like horticulture in Australia, where you see the way in which working holidaymakers, backpackers, are exploited, issues around health and safety, a lot of cash in hand and under under the the table payers by some uh, crooked employers, real structural problems about the exploitation of temporary workers. And there's been a series of scandals in Australia around 7-Eleven, around Domino's Pizzas, around everyone from George Calambaras onwards, about wage theft by employers. As I said before, non-citizen workers face a particular structural problem in Australia because if they start to organise, if they start to complain, if they start to fight for their rights in the workplace, they can be threatened with the loss of their visa because the visa is often tied to a particular employer. That, you know, is just an added weight for them alongside all the, all the pressures that people face every day in the workplace. Well, perhaps if the Australian government wants to do the right thing by people, particularly in the Pacific, they should change the law to make sure that they are protected and... I'm just imagining that when a worker goes back to their own country, the word gets round, you know. You don't want to go to Australia. That's how you get treated. Well, there's one of the complaints from the employers, though, that the Pacific Seasonal Worker Program is over-regulated, that in fact, particularly in the early days, there was uh, uh, too much government monitoring of things like health and safety in the workplace, sexual harassment, ensuring that workers are paid and things like this. This is an ongoing battle, and uh, you know there's, there's been some really positive examples. The uh, former NUW did a lot of work working with seasonal workers uh, to ensure that their wages were paid, that their conditions in terms of housing, transport, and other so-called deductibles were, were appropriate. So you didn't have a whole lot of people just rent in a rural and regional area. You know, and unions can and should uh, to support uh, workers coming in from overseas regardless of their visa status. Surely the government should be stepping up too, not leaving it to the unions. Yeah, but um, this is a coalition government, so we're not expecting them to take a lead, are we? The other problem in all of this too is the militarisation, you know, and uh, researcher Wes Morgan up in Griffith University has written, the Pacific Step Up has a khaki tinge. A major focus of this is about strategic denial, is about maintaining... Uh, Australian and ANZUS political influence and strategic influence in the island states that make up the membership of the Pacific Islands Forum. You know, the concern, as I said, that China would become a, a strategic power in the region. You had the security hawks and the think tanks like the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and others really um, containing for the, China, the containment of China. They say, oh, we're not really about containing China. We want to engage with China. 
But anyone reading the newspapers will know that there's growing US-China tensions and that's playing out with the sort of policies that have been undertaken by the coalition government. Um, there's plenty to criticise um, the Chinese Communist Party about in terms of human rights, but uh, the focus on this is very much about building an alliance spanning from Japan and India to the ANZUS allies, France, Britain to a certain extent, as a way of containing rising Chinese influence uh, in Southeast Asia and across the Pacific Islands. And that's a major focus. And the Australian Defence Force is at the forefront of that, uh, that focus. Nick, do you speak to people in the Pacific about their thoughts about exercises like RIMPAC and the other exercises that go in, in the Pacific with a focus on stopping China or whatever? There's a, a diverse range of opinion across the Pacific, um, you know, and, and uh, dare I say, it's like Australia, you know, it's the, just because you're Pacific Islanders doesn't mean you have one opinion. And so there's an enormous diversity about how to address these common concerns. But it's clear amongst many non-government and community groups, trade unionists in the Pacific and others, that a lot of this sort of focus on the military, on, on the military is drawing resources away from social development policies. There's a lot of concern, too, about the implications of the militarization of the region for human rights within Pacific countries. Within Fiji, for example, there's been a long debate going back to 1987 about the role of the Fiji military forces in politics. And there's been a series of coup d'etats in 1987, in 2000, in 2006, where the military has stepped in. Current Prime Minister... Brangi Bainimarama was former commander of the FMF and, uh, as people well know, was, you know, ran a, a, an unelected regime between uh, the 2006 coup and uh, 2014 when Fiji returned to parliamentary rule. And even today you'll find many journalists, um, many non-government organisations, women's groups and others who are critical about measures taken by the Fiji government over media control, over rights for prisoners over a whole lot of areas. So these human rights debates bubble along in the region and many civil society groups in the Pacific are anxious about rising US-China tensions and how both, frankly, provide a, a poor role model for good governance, for transparency, for media rights, for trade union rights in the region. A lot of Pacific Islanders, you know, not all, but many want to forge their own vision so there's a lot of debate, particularly in this period of how do we come out of the COVID economy? What sort of economy do we want? You know, should it be based around the tourism model that's been uh, central to some countries? You know, countries like Vanuatu, Fiji, Cook Islands, about 40% of their GDP has come from tourism. And that's just been devastated from the, the pandemic and the closure of borders. Even countries like Vanuatu and the Cooks that avoided any contamination from COVID, any cases diagnosed uh, with people diagnosed with COVID. Nonetheless, their economies have been really hit hard and employment devastated for many uh, workers, particularly women workers, um, with the collapse of tourism. And so um, there's a lot of uh, concern about what sort of economic model should be rebuilt after the pandemic. Uh, people don't look at the American model or the Chinese model necessarily as the one that's suitable for a small island developing state. So there's a really vibrant debate going on at community level about the way forward, as there should be in Australia. Finally, Nick, we've been talking about a lot of issues, but the real one is climate change. 
and that's the fundamental structural failure in Australian policy towards the region. Many people have said you can't have a Pacific policy unless you have a climate policy. And uh, as everyone knows, for successive governments going back to the days of John Howard, we've had constant failure in developing an effective climate policy that addresses the concerns of neighbouring countries. And the role of the mining industry and the mining lobby is, uh, is part of the conversation. Let us not forget that John Kunkel, Scott Morrison's Chief of Staff, is a former mining executive and, uh, and involved in the Minerals Council of Australia and other mining lobby activities. Scott Morrison, as Prime Minister, carried a lump of coal into uh, uh, Parliament and you see Matt Cannavan and others campaigning for the feasibility money for uh, the Collinsville uh, coal plant project in North Queensland. Pacific leaders look askance at this and uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, former Prime Minister of Tuvalu and Ali Sopoanga published an article in the Canberra Times one year on from last year's uh, forum, Pacific Islands Forum, which was held in Tuvalu, are calling on the Australian government to seriously engage in the transition towards a fossil-free future. Successive Pacific Island governments have highlighted that Australia, while generous in some areas in terms of providing assistance through development aid and so on, has fundamentally failed the need to address the climate emergency. Um, and that's for the domestic debate within Australia. But it has enormous, enormous implications for regional policy. Ordinary people that you talk to in the Pacific think that there's a level of hypocrisy when Australia talks about being part of the Pacific family, yet systematically uh, fails to engage with the core arguments that are advanced by Pacific NGOs, environmental groups, governments and so on, about the need to reduce emissions. Uh, it's not just enough to put some money on the table for adaptation. It's about Australia making the transition away from fossil fuel-generated electricity and transport towards renewable sources. That's the structural problem. The Boy Declaration, signed in Nauru a couple of years ago at the Pacific Islands Forum, says that global climate change is the greatest single threat to the livelihoods, well-being and security of peoples of the Pacific. And Australia, Maurice Payne, our foreign minister at the time, signed that declaration from the Pacific Islands Forum. Yet we don't see Australia putting the resources into addressing that greatest single threat to the security of the region and the peoples of the region. So when Scott Morrison announced $270 billion worth of funding in coming years for uh, defence and security programs, $270 billion, uh, they're not talking about climate, they're talking about China. That's a serious problem for the success of any engagement policy in the region. Um, Australia's always going to be a big player in the Pacific just for reasons of geography. It's a large capitalist country in an area surrounded by developing countries. So Australia will always be a significant player in the region, but it's a player, not the player. And the desire to be the partner of choice uh, that's really at the heart of this uh, step-up is facing problems. There's a lot of activity. Uh, many of the initiatives that Australia has undertaken have been welcomed by our Pacific neighbours, but these structural problems about the militarisation of the step-up, about the failures in terms of trade and labour mobility policies, about the lack of money in the aid budget 
and most importantly, the lack of a coherent climate policy, those are all structural faults that are undercutting this engagement in the region. Frank Bonimaramas pictured in the paper in Fiji signing a massive deal to sell carbon to China, and that's because Australia dropped the ball. Australian governments, for their own uh, reasons and to protect corporate interests in this in this uh, engagement, have got some serious problems. China ain't going anywhere. Thank you once again, Nick. Thank you. And of course, Nick is Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434-136-501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434-136-501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. To hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the Radioactive Show on 3CR, 10 a.m. Saturdays. In recent months, as the COVID-19 pandemic proceeded, We've heard stories of how companies have dramatically changed operations, both to survive and do some wider good for the community. Just two examples. A gin distillery on Ireland's east coast are making hand sanitizers instead of gin. A Polish oil group has made a move into sanitising production after it retooled the division that normally makes windscreen wipe fluid. And there are many more examples where instead of the motive being to make money, it's actually to do something to make a difference at a time when we are in uncharted waters. Reversal is the title of an article by Kathy Kelly, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and it's a challenge to companies like Boeing to reverse their production of killing machines and participate with dignity and humility in the pursuit of human survival. Kathy, I've just given two examples of many industries who are reversing their production in response to COVID-19. You have one which was hailed as one of the greatest engineering wonders of the world back in the 19th century in Chicago, where you live. But there's also a connection to the arms manufacturer. Can you tell that story? 
there's a lot to learn from the Chicago River. And it happened that the river in Chicago was dumping toxic, very toxic waste that were causing like epidemic levels of, of even cholera and typhus. And so the engineers had to figure out some way to prevent that from continuing because there were so many people that were sickening and dying. And what they did was um, work out a way to reverse the flow of the river so that it uh, would no longer be flowing into Lake Michigan, but rather into what we call the sewage and sanitation canal. They built very deep canals. And anyway, it, it was a, a success. And it meant that uh, the rates of people dying from frightening waterborne diseases went way, way, way down. And, and the people who created this architectural wonder, really, um, were praised and celebrated, and I think as well they should be. So that's a story of a reversal that actually turned a river, to, you know, going in an opposite direction. And it was done by people because they wanted to deal with, we wouldn't say the pandemic level that we're dealing with in the world today, but they took seriously the problems that were afflicting people and they, they did what they could. And so I can't help but think about that you know, when I recognize the military contractors in Chicago, one of whom, the Boeing Corporation, has its headquarters right on exactly that river. There was a demonstration there back when the invasion of Iraq. Were you involved in that? Oh, you know, Voices in the Wilderness, which was the group that sort of preceded Voices for Creative Nonviolence, was very, very involved in civil disobedience actions inside the Boeing headquarters. Um, they you know, would go into the gift shop area and then try to approach the elevators in order to go up and talk with the um, executive leadership of Boeing. And they were arrested repeatedly and there, there was quite a long court case. For some of that time, I was myself in Baghdad, but um, the, the demonstrations related to Boeing have continued. And in Chicago, and I, I don't approve of this anymore, but every year, the authorities use what they say is not a harmful substance, and they dye the river emerald green on St. Patrick's Day. So one year, we had purchased many, many big vats of red popsicle dye, and my young friends went down and dyed the river red right outside of Boeing's headquarters. I think now we need to really figure out ways to protect the river and all of the wildlife, and we, we shouldn't do things like that, to be honest. But that idea of dyeing the river red is a symbol um, – I, I think it's so important that people who are employees in military contractors' firms and the executive directors deal with, grapple with how they're driving the forces toward war. You know, they hire lobbyists who go on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and sort of ply the Congress people and the senators with temptations, um, with uh, practically luring them into giving approval for ongoing weapons sales. And even after the Senate and the Congress has said, no, you can't keep selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, um, President Trump vetoed that bill and uh, Secretary of State Pompeo declared, well, there's an emergency, so we have to get these weapons off to Saudi Arabia. But, you know, who is paying the price for that? I think it's um, Yemeni civilians, including many, many children. And it's... Saudi Arabia and it's Israel, and who pays the price of that? 
Well, Israel is also a major consumer of weapons manufactured by Boeing. Boeing manufactures this thing called the Harpoon and then the um, the GBU bomb and the dense inert metal explosion bomb. These are then sold to Israel. Uh, the United States gives Israel enormous sums of military aid. They've signed a 10-year agreement that's still in force to um, transfer money so that the Israelis can be in advance of every other country in the Middle East, but also the, the Israelis regularly use these weapons against people in Gaza. And then for um, the Saudis, the Boeing Corporation is manufacturing uh, these missiles. They're called SLAM ER uh, missiles, and it's, it's a, an air-to-surface missile. And, uh, you know, those when they explode, those missiles, they disembowel people, they decapitate people, they rip limbs off of torsos. They're, they're hideous missiles. And again, they've been used again and again against civilian places in Yemen. And you were at the receiving end of those weapons in Palestine back in 2009. Well, I did um, begin to distinguish between hellfire missiles that were being dropped from um, or fired by Apache helicopters and 500-pound bombs being dropped by F-35s. And I often say, you know, I know nothing about ballistics, but these weapons exploded once every 11 minutes, from 11 at night till 1 in the morning, and again between 3 and 6 in the morning, these terrible weapons would explode, and it was like a, an ear-splitting blast or a, you know, a gut-wrenching explosion. And the children had been listening to these explosions for 18 days. By the time I turned up, I stayed with the family. And the children of Um Yusuf and Abu Yusuf, uh, they were Yusuf and Shahida, they knew which weapon was which you know they, they because they'd listen to them and and they could they would they would almost play a game you know children could be so inventive and incredibly brave during a lot of these attacks and they'd say ah hellfire uh and in english tell me what these different weapons were that had just exploded and where were they exploding who was underneath them well, I live down a, a street called C Street. There, if you can imagine the Mediterranean shore, and then there's um, a very, very busy thoroughfare, in Gaza, and I was just off of there. So when we were able to go outside, I saw plenty of destruction. I suppose the target most often was probably tunnels, and at the time, Gaza had many tunnels, between uh, areas of the Sinai uh, and, and Gaza, and that's how they got things that they needed, furniture, tools, food. And so those were being pummeled by these weapons. But, you know, I, I sometimes think, um, again, if I could return to the weapons Boeing manufacturers, can you imagine the kind of tunnel that would have to be dug, constructed, if you were to bring uh, Apache helicopters and harpoon weapons and dense inert metal explosives and F-35s and the D-9 caterpillars that are used to cross borders and knock down the orchard. I mean, can you imagine if you were to bring all of that into a tunnel, uh, you'd be thinking about the Grand Canyon practically. So I don't like it that anybody imports weapons above ground, underground, by sea. I don't like it that anybody makes the weapons. 
But I think we have to back off of the double standard wherein the United States gets to declare who are the worthy victims that we should feel sorry for, that we should feel remorse for, and who are the unworthy victims that we shouldn't even mention, even if they're children. And what it does to these children, Mm. most of them grow up, some don't, but what what does it do Mm. for their, their whole being to live through that? Well, you know, some of my friends from Raja tell me that they couldn't even begin to talk about the 2009 bombing and the experience of that until 10 years later, 2019. And then, you know, 2013, there's another huge bombing. 2014, even worse. And, you know, people and their children, I think, are traumatized for many, many years to come. And they sometimes don't even expect to have a future. It um, certainly creates desires for revenge and retaliation or understanding of why some desire revenge and retaliation. And and yet, you know, I think of the children that I knew in Gaza that time in 2009, and they couldn't wait. They just couldn't wait once the ceasefire was declared to go out with a tarp and collect uh, twigs and scrub brush and anything that they could haul back to their parents so that Um Yusuf could build a fire so that she could cook. That's how kids are. I, I saw it in, in Iraq also. Kids were um, going out into areas where, you know, I don't know, the bricks might have even been contaminated. Who knows what was used on the bombs that destroyed buildings. The kids were collecting bricks to bring back to their parents to rebuild. And there's also Raytheon. That's one of the largest weapons defence manufacturers also in the world. And you've got a very frightening story of a little boy in Yemen. Yeah, you know, the people in Yemen um, had been celebrating because they were so excited. They finally had hit water. They had been drilling and drilling and drilling in this very remote village called Ahab. And, and getting nowhere, you know, there, nothing's coming and they thought maybe they got conned and maybe the rig was faulty, maybe they'd never get water and they had all chipped in money they didn't really have, they borrowed money, they um, begged people who were more prosperous, help us dig for this water because we're desperate for it. And then when they hit water, there was a celebration and the celebration went into the wee hours of the morning and people were dispersing from that celebration when a Raytheon-manufactured bomb that was fired by the Saudis from a, a, a warplane, and it may be that um, the United States had given them intelligence because it was sharing intelligence on possible targets with the Saudis. It may be that the United States trained the pilots. In fact, that's pretty likely. In fact, at the time when this happened, the United States was even helping the jet planes refuel so they could go back and do more bombing. So this bomb that's about the size of a compact car is dropped from the airplane and it's kind of dangling on a a long fuse. But then as soon as it breaks from the fuse, as soon as the attachment with the airplane is broken, the bomb sort of comes to life and its, its radar system comes to life and the bomb starts to move very, very rapidly toward a target, and those targets are, are almost always precisely hit. So this was planned. 
And the target was the people that were celebrating, people that were just leaving the celebration suddenly were hit with two a hundred pounds of explosives, and the steel shards fly faster than eight times the speed of sound. So if you can imagine steel shards from a bomb that's just detonated going at that speed and hitting individuals, they don't stand a chance. And then the um, air bursts can travel so fast that they can rip limbs off. So there were many people that were maimed and wounded who who were survivors, but their lives would never be the same. Altogether, 42 people were killed by that Raytheon bomb. And the person who wrote the article, Jeffrey Stern, traces the path of the bomb, more or less, from the factory in southwest Arizona where it was manufactured, until at the end of his account, he meets one of the survivors, Fahd. And Fahad says, here, touch my cheek. And Jeffrey touches Fahad's cheek and can feel the piece of the bomb that's still embedded in his upper cheekbone. You know, we don't often sense the reality of what these bombs do to people. And there were children the next day who ran out to see what happened. You know, their their parents couldn't restrain them, and many some of the parents were going out too. You know, they their loved ones hadn't come home. What happened? What happened? So about 100 people had congregated, and the Saudi warplanes returned and bombed people who had gathered, and that's why there were up to 42 victims who died. And you also think, Kathy, of the people who work in those factories where they put these bombs together. There must be an impact on them. Well, I think, you know, increasingly in many parts of the world, activists have been going to those factories. Now, in the European Union, they're able to invoke um, laws that have been passed by the European Union that forbid selling weapons specifically to Saudi Arabia. So in little Sardinia in Italy, People, um, you know, made it very clear to the factory, you know, we wish you'd shut down completely. We wish you'd make something else. But if you're going to make weapons, you cannot, by law, sell those weapons to Saudi Arabia. And then there are people who have gone to the ports and stopped ships from docking at certain ports and saying, you know, you can't engage in that weapon transfer. It's against the European Union law. So uh, the campaign against the arms trade in the UK, various campaigns against sending weapons to um, countries that commit human rights violations, and certainly the Saudis are one of those countries. And and you know the UAE has a terrible record. I mean these are Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and even the International Commission of the Red Cross. They've all put out reports documenting these human rights violations. So there there have been some successful campaigns to stop weapons going to Saudi Arabia, also in Canada. But I was so impressed to learn just that in Australia, in Melbourne, people have also been doing actions to protest a Boeing construction of weapons. Yes, it's not just the selling, who you're selling to. You've got to stop making them in the first place. Well, that's certainly what we want to tell to the executives at the Boeing Corporation here. Boeing's headquarters are here in Chicago. And Chicago's having 
quite a lot of rioting and looting. And it's interesting to me that the area being looted is, they call it the Magnificent Mile. It's the place with the, the very high-end stores. And it's also a place with some of the wealthiest people and the most expensive real estate. And it turns out that the head of Boeing, a man named David C. Calhoun, who, when he was appointed head of Boeing, moved to Chicago, has has rented a condo for $2.5 million a year in what's called the Palmolive Building, and it's right in that neighborhood that's been looted. And I think about all of the people and their families who live down there, and I think it must be terrifying. You know, the, the, it's, it's an awful symbol. The drawbridges have all been raised so that people can't go in and out of that neighborhood to prevent people from going there and doing any more looting. Probably frightening to have a strong police presence, and it's frightening, I'm sure, to uh, wonder, is this going to happen again? And maybe Mr. Calhoun thinks, oh, my gosh, I you know, I moved my family into this neighborhood in Chicago, and it's a war zone. But, you know, people have never paid attention to the neighborhoods in Chicago where people don't have food because they're food deserts, where people don't have clean water, where they don't have anything close to adequate education or after-school satellite centers or jobs medical care. These are areas where um, many people have been imprisoned with the mass incarceration rates and children are affected by the imprisonment of their parents and prisoners released face stigma and disenfranchisement and unemployment and family breakup. I mean, nobody has really cared much about those neighborhoods over the last couple hundred years in Chicago. But what must Mr. Calhoun think about what his corporation does to neighborhoods in Yemen. You know, they are getting hit by a lot worse than looters who smash windows. They're getting hit by steel shards that go faster than the speed of sound and disembowel people and nightmare fears and and horrible consequences. And this in a country that's on the verge of 2.6 million children starving, according to the UN. So I've been thinking a lot about the head of Boeing and the employees at Boeing and the elected representatives who are so easily swayed by the military contractors, Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, who all say, you know, we've got a, a plant in your district, so please don't do anything to jeopardize the jobs of people working in our plant. And please don't do anything to jeopardize the kinds of money that we can put into your uh, next campaign. Just go back to that time when you and your friends went into their offices many years ago during the the attack on, on Iraq. You said there was a gift shop. Just wondering what they sell in the gift shop. Souvenirs, postcards, mementos. Of what? Well, mostly airplanes. You know, Boeing is a company that makes passenger jets, but they do have um, quite a bit of pride in their their weapons as well. I do remember that they had a, a saying about that was kind of extolling Boeing's weapons. But I, Jan, I have to double check on that. I don't want to get it wrong. I know Raytheon's big slogan is um, strike with confidence 
But Boeing had something similar. The next time I talk with you, I'll be ready to tell you more about that. But it is terrible. Uh, and I also want to say that Boeing is the main sponsor for the Lyric Opera. The the river it, it abuts directly the Boeing building, and then you, uh, when you cross the bridge, you're right at the Lyric Opera. Boeing is one of the main sponsors. So we've done many, many actions where we um, go on the nights when the opera is beginning and try to hand out leaflets to people who are going to the opera and say, you know, Boeing is helping to um, bring about this experience, but here's what else they bring about. I'm not sure how many people in Australia realise the history of Chicago back when the slaves were freed, and that was a place where the black community moved to that area. Is that correct? Well, it's true, and it's also true that some of the hardest working people in the history of this city and of the country lived in that area and had come up to the north after working as slaves or sometimes as sharecroppers and working very, very hard and enduring the Jim Crow laws, the many ways in which during Reconstruction there were very sly and inventive, insidious ways of entrapping African-American people to bring them before courts of law and then they'd be punished either with imprisonment or sometimes they'd they'd have to um, be indebted in order to work off the punishment. Anyway, people came to Chicago and worked in the steel mills and they worked in the stockyards and they worked very, very hard. Many of the women had to leave their homes to take work as domestic laborers in faraway neighborhoods. Uh, They certainly didn't have cars. And so that meant that a generation of children was growing up as latchkey kids, kids who didn't have a mom and dad necessarily at home when they got home. And, you know, it's it's predictable what happens when children don't uh, have that kind of parental presence in their lives. Well, it's coming up to Election Day, and it seems to us here that Trump's doing his best to sabotage it. Well, people are very nervous. You know, mailboxes were picked up right off the sidewalks in um, Colorado and just removed, and then um, the sorting machines have been taken out of major post offices, which will slow things down tremendously. And it's clear that the President of the United States is trying his best to interfere with the capacity of people to vote by mail during a pandemic. And it's it's very dangerous for people to line up and go into, you know, halls where the um, aerosolized uh, virus particles could could infect them. And so, you know, I think they're hoping people will stay home and won't be able to have an effective ballot by mail. So these, uh, these, these kinds of actions by President Trump are, are child, childish and full of belligerence, but you know, it's also illegal, I feel sure, for him to interfere with processes in, in the way that he's been doing in, in multiple scenarios, firing people. There's an inspector general that should have been continuing a report about the ways in which President Trump illegally declared an emergency and used that as a reason for sending weapons to Saudi Arabia. And, you know, as the investigation was going on, the guy that was in charge of it was just abruptly dismissed, fired. 
So it's an important time for people to be paying attention and pushing back. I, I think elected representatives must be hearing from their constituents to say, you know, this is no time to sit back and say, well, gee, you know, <laughs> what what can we do? Uh, we, we've got to really um, demand that people are very, very proactive now in trying to stop this Trump administration. I believe he should resign and that his vice president should resign right along with him. Just finally, Kathy, are there concerns also that Biden, apart from the things that you've said, that the policies of Biden aren't that different to Trump? Well, I think he's a militarist and a centrist, and um, I am not hopeful that he'll restrain and rein in the weapon profiteers and the people who have built up this hideous military-industrial congressional media complex. I think there might be greater safety for the world in as much as he won't be as bad on the uh, matters related to climate catastrophe. I don't think he's going to be a Bernie Sanders who would have taken um, greater steps, but he won't be as bad as Trump. I think with regard to Iran, it might be that uh, they'll start looking for an end to the economic sanctions against Iran. I surely hope so. And uh, stop the sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia but you know, will they restore the uh, joint comprehensive plan of action so that Iran would be able to once again have that incentive to stop any kind of building of nuclear weapons? Will they make sure that the Saudis aren't going to start moving toward uh, obtaining nuclear weapons? And now that there's a normalized relationship between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, we're pretty sure that the weapon contractors will be cheering and celebrating because they now are able to easily sell more weapons to the United Arab Emirates. They don't have to worry about a previous law which said that um, no weapon contractors could sell weapons that would make an Arab state more threatening than the state of Israel. It's a sordid and tragic reality that we're facing because of course you know the real threat we face is the threat of what we're doing to the environment this is terrible burning of the atmosphere that uh, is not being reversed and that's what we most need to reverse so i think about that river we ought to learn from the river thank you so much kathy i've been speaking with kathy kelly from voices for creative Nonviolence.